0: We're going to move on in our series, In the Church, The Church at War. Each week, I would like to spend just a a bit of time reviewing key ideas from weeks prior. And I do that, hopefully not to bore you, but um, because as we repeat concepts, they do have a tendency to stick better with us. And some of these truths are very important for us to get down deep in some of the associated scriptures. And so I won't review everything we've covered, all the main points or, or Bible verses, but just a few. First and foremost, I want you to get this one down deep. The church is not a physical building. It is a people of God who form a spiritual building built on the sure foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone of the church. And that's from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. We covered a few other main ideas, but I'm going to skip over those. One of them I want to reiterate, though, is this. If your doing defines your being, repentance is needed. I didn't mention this last week. But I want to add to that um, a brief mentioning of the story of the rich young ruler. Do you remember that account in the New Testament? This young man who's very wealthy, he came to Jesus confident in himself, confident in his own goodness, his impressive record of good deeds done. And yet, if you know this story, what lurked deep in his own heart, deep within In a place known only to himself and to Jesus, he was actually empty and alone and sad. But he had everything you could want at his age and in his setting in life, and so he wouldn't obviously advertise that. And yet here he is coming to Jesus in need. He wouldn't acknowledge openly his spiritual condition. He maintained this pretense of all that he'd done, and yet all that he'd done still wasn't enough to fill up the void that was in his soul. And Jesus loved him enough to speak to his heart issues. Jesus spoke to the idols of his heart, which were idols of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And what did this young man do? Wouldn't it have been wonderful if he forsook his great material wealth, which not everyone with wealth is called to do, but Jesus called this young man to do it because he saw that it was an idol of his heart. And so did this man forsake that? Did he let go immediately of his earthly comfort in order to radically follow Christ and to let the shackles fall off of him and he could breathe the free air of liberty and the gospel? No, that's not what happened. Tragically, that's not what happened. What did this young man do at the end of the story? He walked away, what does it say, sad. And and more significantly, he walked away from Jesus. Literally, physically, but also spiritually, he walked away from the source of salvation in life. We don't know the final outcome of his life. We would hope the lights came on at some point and he found life and freedom in the gospel. We don't know. But we do know that on this day, he did not join the great eternal company of God's people. He did not become one of the forgiven and the redeemed on this day. He favored the world. He favored himself. He favored his material security. He was not willing to forsake anything or possibly everything to follow Christ, to take up his cross and walk in these footsteps. And so on that day, on the outside of the city of God, he remained. Why? Why? Because in all his lostness and loneliness, which he had at least some perception of because he came to Jesus. His solution to his problem was to look deep within himself. He could not see past his own doing. It was his doing and his accumulating that defined his being, that gave meaning to his life. And so what we see, this happens all the time, his doing became his undoing. His identity was defined by all he'd done and all he owned. And since he owned a lot, you'd think, wouldn't you, especially as average Americans, we would think that he would have been satisfied. That's the promise of the world. You wouldn't have pegged him as a man with an identity crisis, and yet still, when he looked in a mirror, it was like he was staring at a missing persons poster. He had no relationship to speak of with the God who created him and who knew intimately every detail of his life. And so what sort of identity did he have, really? God says to his children in his word, it's in me that you are to live and move and have what? Your being, your existence. It's your being in him that is to give meaning to who you are. And only later does that transform what you do and why you do it. And so last week, we looked at these beautiful verses that define the being, the identity of the true church as God calls to to one who's spiritually adulterous and wayward. And what does he say to his bride, who is the church? Hosea 2.19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. It's all that God does through his covenant love that gives us our identity, that gives us our life. And then in verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. It's beautiful what God has done. And it's only when our being is changed by him the living God, that we begin to do the right things for the right reasons. It's then that we are freed up to show that we're the church in one of the main ways by loving others the way that he has loved us. And so that led to one of our our main ideas as well on the screen here for you. If you desire to love others because of how God first so loved you, it is a sign that you are a member of the true body of Christ, the true church. There are a thousand evidences, but this is one of the main ones, how you begin to interact and value and relate to those who are going to be with you for eternity. The true church is made up of those who, instead of bringing their pride to God, they bring their need, they bring their guilt, they bring their shame, they bring their fear, which is to say they don't really bring anything of significance, of substance, All they can bring is their lack, which God then happily fills. We become his children by what he has done for us, not what we bring and do for him. And so the good news, friends, is if you desire to be a Christian, a Christ follower, literally a follower, a disciple, if your longing is to be a part of the true spiritual church, not like a card-carrying member of a particular body that meets in a particular building, but a member of the company who will live forever with the king, forgiven and free. If that's what your heart desires, friend, that is what you can have. Because you wouldn't want that if his spirit wasn't drawing you to that. And if his spirit is drawing you to that, it's because you are chosen by him and dearly loved by him. And he's calling you to be part of his bride, part of his body, part of his church. Let this define who you are at the deepest level, and then it will begin to radically change what you do, how you live. And so we finished with this main idea. The church's true identity is, I was loved and chosen by God before creation. And that's only by his grace. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And in verse 25, Christ loved God the church for whatever reason that's lost on us because of our unlovability, if that's a word, he loved us all the same. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So thank you for obliging me while we We revisit a few of these ideas, but also color them in with additional scripture and comments. Sometimes I I fall into this pastor trap of, there's a few things I wanted to say that I didn't have time to say, and there's this other scripture that goes so well with this point, and I didn't have time for that. And so part of the review is adding a little bit of new material as well. But let's move on now in our study of the church. There are many different uh, trails we will follow in what God says throughout his word of what the church is and and why it exists and, and all these things. Sometimes we'll be very specific about a unique thing that the Bible says, other times it'll be something we build on for numerous weeks. But today, very specifically, I want to explore one aspect of the nature of the relationship of the church to the world, or you could say the spirit of the world, or the prevailing culture in the world. Before we get into that, let me say this first. If you are a true believer, a true member of Christ's body, and you have this experience of being somewhere else in the world and you meet another believer who you've never met before, the most amazing thing happens. It's remarkable. You have this immediate sense of knowing them, sometimes with a a closeness and an affection that supersedes even your relationship with some of your biological family. If you've ever gone to a conference, a Christian conference or a uh, something like that, or you've traveled overseas, or you've met someone from a, a church in some other part of the world, it's, it's the most amazing thing. You immediately just have this sense of knowing between you. It's a sense of true fellowship. This person is my brother, my sister. We love the same Lord. We're filled with the same spirit. That's why you can be in a room with five other people who are quietly praying, or you can be in a stadium with 20,000 people singing at the top of their lungs. Either way, there's this supernatural knowing and fellowship that unites you in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all and through all. That's the miracle of the church, the gathered ones, the people of God, his people, known from eternity past by him, destined to be with him for eternity future, and also saved in this brief window of time and space known as human history on planet Earth. It's incredible. And so the reason I say that is to say this, how important then that the true church remains focused, so focused on the one Savior who brings together in fellowship with each other and with himself, his people. We are to focus on the one Savior who brings together his eternal people. We are not to focus on on the million petty differences of personality or preference that constantly divide the body of Christ. As it concerns his people, his bride, his church, God is interested in gathering gathering them together in perfect unity, not in splitting them apart and dividing them. Matthew 12.30 says this, Jesus says this, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You might think that's an odd verse to bring up since it's talking about scattering and gathering and and all these things, and I just said that he he seeks just to gather, but think what's implied in this verse. There are those who are not of him, who are not of his body, not not of the church, and yes, they've been scattered from him. They are divided from him, but what does he say about all who are his? That there's one thing that that defines them, and that's they've been gathered together in him, the gathered ones. And yet, despite this great truth, often, too often, his church has been about the business of dividing over things that do not need to divide. Now, that's not to say that some things aren't worth dividing over. Some things are. The church can only be the church when it is brought together and united in truth. That's foundational to the true church, is to be united in truth. His truth. And what is truth? His word is truth. So, like the pictures I showed you on week one of these fanatical groups, at whatever point a person or a group of people choose to ignore his word or twist his word or rewrite his word, attempt to, that person or that group are really the ones separating themselves from the body from the church they are cutting themselves off from the vine in which there is life jesus is the vine and his word supplies the life that works into the branches of the vine and to be cut off from him is perilous jesus said in john 15:1 through 4 i am the true vine friends this is the church this is a picture of the church my father is the gardener he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And then here's an amazing statement. All this talk about our being. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Think of the significance of that. Wait, you mean I'm not clean because of all the things I try to do to make myself feel good about who I am and all my good deeds? No, you are clean because of the word Jesus has spoken over you, his son, his daughter. You are a a forgiven one. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And then just a few verses later, Jesus equated remaining in the vine with remaining in his words. So yes, the truth has to divine the church, the word. But for those who are remaining in the truth, for those who are remaining in the vine, we have to see the heartbeat of God is absolutely for the unity of his people. No question. It is not for division. His heart is for reconciliation, not broken fellowship. His heart is for selfless, sacrificial love expressed toward one another, not malice and offense. His heart is that we serve one another in humility, not take advantage of one another in pride. That's his heart for his body. His heart for his people, this can be a tough one, is that they be around a table together, able to look one another in the eye and value one another's presence and fellowship. Not to gather in this house, but then go each to our own corner and just keep to ourselves and put walls up that keep us from having to step out of our shell and actually be the body. If the church is not one, not united, the church cannot stand. And this is why if you look back over the millennia of church history, you see that some of the earliest creedal confessions of the Christian church when they fought against false teaching and they they put out these amazing statements of here's who we are, here's what it means to be the body of Christ. One of the things they clearly affirmed from the beginning was, we believe in the church, which is one, is how it was phrased. They say other things about it, but that's, that's one of the key statements. The church is one. Matthew 12, 25, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Now, here's here's where we kind of are getting to where we're going today. Here's one of the sad realities is there will always be division between the true church and the spirit of the world. There will always be spiritual warfare. There will always be conflict. That will happen. That will go on until Christ comes and God sets all things right forever. Division must come in the world but it is not to come among brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we ask ourselves, who or what am I most against in my life? Because surely there are things or people. This is in our very nature. It's not just to, to celebrate what we're for, but to be mindful of what we're against. It's in our, it's in our nature to dwell often on who or what we're against there are times conflict is unavoidable. The question is, who will inevitably, inevitably be against who? And for you grammar experts, is it who will be against whom? Or who? Okay. I thought, I thought that sounded wrong. Thank you. I got some nods there. Who will necessarily be against whom? Where is the war truly waged? Is it one man or woman against another? Is it one group against another? Is it Physical warfare that the church will inevitably find itself in the midst of? No, as it concerns what you might call the spiritual war, God makes very clear in his word the nature of it and what's involved. And here's what God says very clearly. There will always be the spirit of the world, as he he calls it, the spirit of the age, the prevailing culture. There will always be the spirit of the world and it, it is always going to be against the Spirit of God. The two will forever be locked in war and in conflict until Christ comes. The Spirit of the world is against His Spirit. And by default, then, against His church, against His people. So our battle, as Paul very clearly says, is not flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle waged in the heavenly places against spiritual powers of this age. It's a spiritual war against the heart of the prevailing culture to steadily corrupt and to destroy. It's not that nothing good ever happens in the culture. There are many good things that happen in society and certain civilizations at times. But when you dig really deep down into the heart of it, there will always be a spiritual war that's, that's being raged. And to prove this, all you have to do is, is take a, the briefest glance back at human history Because what's the cycle of societies? Is it that civilizations and societies begin to develop and then they just are on this set trajectory upward toward peace and love and harmony and purity and integrity and honesty? No one taking advantage of another. No one being unfaithful to another. Family units being strong. Marriages being perfect. Does the culture just naturally aid that process? I mean, do you go out into the world and and you find that it's almost impossible to be selfish or sinful or taken advantage of, or take advantage of someone. That's not what you find. You find the opposite, right? Think of the the internet age more than anything. What's the primary purpose of its existence in the culture if not to bring down the spiritual quality of life? That's the way cultures go. That's the way societies go. The leaders The voices of a generation, they they kind of set the moral goalposts, and then what happens? The next generation comes, and they're going to move those goalposts to suit their own perception of right and wrong, and those goalposts get moved usually in only one direction. They don't get moved back until the society eventually collapses, and then it gets redone. I mean, that's just a rough analysis of the cycles of human history. Now, sometimes you see this, this thing happen where There's a generation that rises up and things have gotten so horrible in a particular place that there will be this group of courageous idealists who will ultimately give everything. They'll give their own lives in the pursuit of a greater good, of an ideal, that they can then hand down to their children and grandchildren and say, may you have a better life than I had. And often that comes at the cost of their own life. And a society at times can be founded on good principles. It's not perfect, but it's founded on solid pillars of the value of freedom and self-sacrifice and service and hard work and integrity and contentment. Societies that have not just healthy single individuals, but healthy functioning family units as well. Societies where sexuality is kept sacred as God always intended Throughout history, people at various times and in various places have lived and died to attain or preserve those kinds of ideals in a society. And the good fruits of their sacrifice can sometimes be reaped for a long period of time. And I would say we're even reaping some of the good fruits of those very sacrifices. But what always happens eventually? The spirit of the age, the spirit of the world is tireless. It is restless until it has slowly, steadily picked apart and compromised and twisted and perverted every good thing until every good thing disappears and it collapses, morality collapses. 1 Corinthians 2.12 draws a distinction here. This is spoken of the church. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. See, there are two spiritual forces, two spiritual powers locked in, in conflict so that we may understand what God has freely given us. And then Paul goes on to write very often in his letters of something that he calls the flesh. And is this referring just merely, literally, to just my skin? What's Paul really saying over and over again? He refers to the flesh, the flesh, the flesh. What he's referring to is spiritual evil that is expressed through our physical bodies. And this natural sinfulness, this spiritual evil, this flesh, it's the result of the spirit of the age, the spirit of the world working against us, yes, but we have to be honest, also in us and through us. It's a part of us. We're born into it, it's our natural condition. It keeps us separated from the life that is in God. And so we see very clearly in the New Testament, in our natural selves, we are ruled by our own flesh. Whatever passions or desires we have, it's like a carrot dangling. and It's like we're powerless. We can't help but just follow it. We're gonna go where our flesh leads us, even if it's to our own death, sometimes physical and certainly eventual eternal. If God does not intervene by his spirit, and overcome us, overcome our hearts, overcome our rebellion, overcome our flesh, overcome the spirit of the world that is in us. God sovereignly has to do that. He will overcome our sin, birthing new life in his people, and then he begins to aid them in this conflict, in this holy war. The war that's not just against the culture, but the war of slowly, steadily putting the flesh to death which is so difficult to do. Many of you know, I know, as we're called to be conformed to something far greater. Specifically, we're called to conform, to be conformed to the image of the holy God himself. There's an incredible description of this. It's compelling in, in the book of Ephesians. Look at this passage with me. Paul writes to the church, and here's what he says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead, spiritually Dead in which you used to live when you followed what? The ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Do you see the clear language and description of the spiritual power that is there? And it's part of us. And there's no room for moral high ground here on the church's part. Like, oh, look at that wicked, despicable world and culture around us. We could never be so unholy and awful as them. Look at us and how spiritual and holy we are. No, no, Paul calls us right out on on any inclination like that. He says in verse three, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature. That was our being, it was our identity, deserving of God's wrath. It was well-deserved, his punishment, separation from his life because of our flesh, because of our sin. But God... Because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. That's good news, isn't it? For the church, for the people of God. There's this war, though, that precedes that and that even continues to to be part of that. It's further defined in Galatians 5, 16. But I say, Paul writes to the church, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, what does he say? Are against the spirit. Always have been, always will be until the end of the age of human history. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. See, this is torture, Is spiritual torture. Like there's, there's this brief glim, glimmer we have, this glimpse at times of life as it ought to be. Like things aren't as, as they should be. Everything's wrong in this world. Everything's backwards. There's death. There's suffering. There's injustice. It's all, it doesn't seem like that's the way it, sh- it should be. And God says, it's not the way it was supposed to be, but behold what I am doing. And there's this part of us that longs to, to be free and to do the right thing and to be alive, and, and yet we're kept in bondage by the flesh. And, and we, it's like we can see this, this other life that's available, and yet we're powerless to get there. And he says, finally, when the Spirit comes and ultimately wins this war in our hearts, it frees us up to actually finally begin to do the things we wanted to do that we couldn't do. That's true freedom. And if you guys know Paul, you know that he, he employed lists. Like if you were confused about what he means, like, hey, what does this look like in real time? What does this look like in real life? Paul would say, I'll give you a list. I'll tell you. And uh, woe to us if he was to, to come back to life and give us a list for American culture today. Thankfully, we have the lists that we have, though. They, they're just as relevant today as they were 2,000 years ago in Corinth and, and Athens and everywhere else. If you've read these lists of Paul where he's, he's saying, here's what it looks like. If you're, if you're being led by the Spirit or if you're being controlled by the flesh, here's what it looks like. There's dozens of different things that he's put on these lists. But if you were, if you were to try to, to sweep a bunch of them into one broad category, which he kind of seems like he's leading us to do, there's really a couple that are the most prominent. And these aren't exclusive, but if you want to see the proof that's in the pudding, if, if you want to know for sure if you're, if you're at least growing in the right direction or if you're being led further down into spiritual death, it's not that you'll, you'll live these things out perfectly, but here's a good litmus test. Here's a good indicator that the war is, is at least being waged in a good direction in your heart. Here are a couple of the main ways to tell. The proof of God's Spirit Winning the spiritual war in a heart and soul. Here are a couple main ones. A person's sexuality is becoming increasingly under control. Not just like totally out of control, free for all, go deeper and deeper down the hole of perversion, these rabbit trails that the world would lead us down. A person's sexuality is becoming increasingly under the control of God's spirit. And secondly, you're remaining in good fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's like a dozen things on Paul's list that fit into those two broad categories. Again, those aren't mutually the exclusive two, or those aren't the exclusive two, but those are are broadly speaking two of the main ones, the main proofs and tests. When you are a true member of the church, the body of Christ, you increasingly want to honor God with your body because you realize it's now the temple in which his spirit is dwelling. It's not a building, it's not a room like this. It's within the human heart and soul. And You need for that space to be made holy, to accommodate a holy God. There's a growing desire in you for that. And there's a growing desire to want to to remain in good fellowship with your brothers and sisters, not to be at odds with them, not to be distanced from them, but to love them, to pray for their good, to work toward their good, to serve them, to pray for them, to even begin to long for that day that we get to be together forever. Galatians 5.25-26, if we live by the Spirit, you see these broad categories, living by the control of the Spirit or living under the flesh, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. These are all descriptions of things that, that, that wedge themselves in and begin to divide the body and fester and pollute. The good relationship that God is calling his people to stay in. You see how at the root of it all, our ability to remain in good fellowship with one another is contingent upon the spirit of God working in and through us. Do You see the spiritual war that's being waged in every heart, every life, every soul? Who's winning the war in and through you? The spirit of God or the spirit of the world? The Holy Spirit or the flesh? Who are you most at home among? The people of God or the prevailing culture? It's important that as we read about the conflict between the world and the church, that we not, we not let that get us to this place of, ah, I want to fight. I want to go to war with the world and I want to stick it to them and, and tell them what's what. No, we have to realize that, that those we're locked in conflict with are the same ones we're trying to win over to the gospel. And we have to do that in very unconventional ways by the Spirit of God, praying for enemies, loving those who we disagree with, not reacting in ways that The world would react to the church. But what you can see is that the world has always hated the church, and it always will, the spirit that's in the world. That doesn't mean every person in the world who's not a Christian hates Christians. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in general, there is a spiritual power that is against the true church of God. And it's not hard to see this if you look. In every generation, there are particular moral issues that that aren't nearly so much political as they are biblical, And I know it's very rare that we talk about these sorts of issues, and and I I certainly don't harp on them every week, but sometimes something will just pop up in the news that just seems tailor-made for a message that we're talking about, and that happened again this week. It's happened every once in a while, but I don't know if any of you saw this, but just two days ago, County 10 News published this article about the conclusion over in Lander of the 40 Days for Life rally, which I have have, uh, some very dear friends, brothers and sisters who are are very much a part of that work and and that ministry. They're very dear, and their hearts are very convicted about certain issues that they speak to. So the 40 Days Initiative, it's a, a pretty remarkable one. It's this group of believers who commit for 40 days to gathering daily, at least for a little allotment of time, and they gather publicly, which in our culture isn't always popular to do. But they actually sign a commitment form saying they will do so respectfully, quietly, peaceably, that they won't engage in vitriol, that if if hateful things or conflict are thrown at them, they won't respond in like kind, that they're there to be a witness for Christ. That's a very unconventional way to commit to being public and standing for what you believe in. Anyway, uh, this, this short little article was published by County 10, and it was very unbiased. It simply just said what the event was and, and how it was going to conclude. There were a couple pastors and speakers who were going to share a little bit, and, and uh, leaders who were going to share their heart at, at this particular event as they closed in prayer. Um, but then, the comments. Oh, the comments. What a dangerous place. The comment section on the Internet. It's like, man, handle with care. Limit greatly how much time you spend in the comment section. And uh, I hope that we're all pretty similar and that it's a very, very small amount of our time that we spend there. So here's one of the the very first comment, had a ton of reactions to it. Here's what it says of these Christians. They don't like abortions, but they are fine ignoring all the children in foster care. Put your energy toward the babies that need it, the ones that are here and can use it now. Leave women and their choices alone. Now, one of the things I like to say when we talk about these kind of sensitive, controversial things is it's perfectly fine when people disagree. Like, that's okay. If, if you radically disagree with the things we're saying here and you want to sit down and have coffee and let's, let's each express why we think the way we do, what's brought us to that place in our life, and just listen, just have a, a place that we can be and, and hear But one of the things I I want to point out about this this comment is there are at least three significant truth claims that are proposed by it. And these are very representative of the broader culture in our, our world. And if you look at what it says, they don't like abortions, but they're fine ignoring all the children in foster care. Here's the first truth claim this person is submitting. If you believe killing babies in the womb is wrong, you therefore ignore all children in foster care and believe it is right to do so. That's the truth claim that they're saying. When you say, if you're against abortion, you are therefore fine ignoring all the children in foster care, that's the truth claim you're you're presenting. But we have to ask, is that a cogent argument? Does the conclusion follow from the premise, logically? No, it does not. Those are two separate things. And those reading the article and commenting, they have no way of knowing what the view of those people praying is on foster care. They have no way of knowing that. They only have a way of knowing what their view is on the sanctity of life in the womb. And yet they draw a correlation. And this is what's called a logical fallacy that you assume because a person is standing up for one thing, they automatically feel a certain way about another thing. To give you an example, it's kind of like this. Let's say a bunch of kids decided it would be a good idea to dip french fries in antifreeze and eat them. I know, it's a horrible thing to consider. But there's this group of believers who decide to get together to pray about that issue because it's starting to spread like wildfire and they want to pray that this wouldn't happen anymore. They want to pray that God would move and get a hold of of those hearts. And let's say County 10 publishes an article about these people out praying about this issue and someone comments very angrily, you think eating poison french fries is a bad idea, but you ignore those who need mashed potatoes on Thanksgiving. It's like, what? You know, that, that, but that's a, that's a sim- similar logical example of, of that, that type of argument. Like, it's a total fallacy. And the world, the prevailing culture, does this all the time to believers who, who feel very strongly it's morally wrong to kill infants who can't speak for or defend themselves. Now, we might disagree on that issue, but this fallacy isn't helping. What's another truth claim in this comment, if you look at the, the middle section There, on the next slide, you'll see the part that's underlined. Oop, there we go. Put your energy toward the babies that need it. And so the truth claim that's being proposed there is children in the womb do not necessarily need care. Children outside the womb do. That's what's being said in that comment. A third truth claim proposed there is that women have an inherent moral right to take the life of their own child, to kill that child, if it's in their own womb. And those who do this should be left alone. Now they're arguing that moral point, but you have to ask, what's the moral authority informing it? Like, who says? Like, who makes that determination? Who gets to say what the oughtness is in this situation, as in a human ought to or ought not to do a particular thing? That's a moral issue. What we have to acknowledge is that The seat of moral authority can only come from a few different possible sources. Either there is a God who exists, who is morally perfect, and he gets to determine and say what ought or ought not to be the case, or the prevailing culture can define that. Sometimes legislation can define that. Or by far the most common view in our culture is that it resides in the individual to make that statement of what is truly right and what's wrong. Moral authority resides in the expression of the individual. That's largely viewed in our culture as the ultimate seat of moral authority, is whatever a person feels for themselves, that becomes their truth and their morality. Now, the, the difficulty with that is it usually only goes one way. Uh, once a person disagrees or pushes back, um, there's, there's not like a mutual respect given. There's vitriol, as a lot of you know. Because one of the very next comments said, they, the believers, don't care about the baby, it's about control. Another one of the comments uh, said this, they don't care about life or the quality of life. It's the hypocrisy. They want kids born, but not fed or protected. So again, you see this logical fallacy that if you stand for the right to life in the womb, you therefore don't want kids who are out of the womb to be fed or protected. Um, That's the truth claim that's being submitted. One of the next comments was this, they have relegated women to be breeders. And then I want to mention this last one. There's like 40 comments, but this last one is interesting because it it garnered by far the greatest response of affirmation and support, and that was this. It's too bad they're not sitting in the cold with Save Our Foster Kids signs instead. I bring that up because that's actually a very popular mindset. That's a, a moral belief of the prevailing culture that those who would stand for the value and the sanctity of life in the womb have zero concern for children in the foster care system or orphans in the world. If we were to take the reactions to that comment to be something of a reliable sample size of the the prevailing culture, what that tells us is that this has to be true, that believers only care about this but not that. And so we have to ask, is that belief, is that truth claim based on actual research, or is it possibly based on cultural and media bias? Um, because if you dig into this issue, here's what you'll find on the next slide. Um, there are some cr- accredited research firms, the Barna Group, very very reputable, and also Family Research Council and others who have discovered this. Christians are approximately two times more likely, twice as likely as any other demographic to foster or to adopt. And so you, you clearly see the fallacy there. And I'm, I'm very encouraged by just the number of people in our body that have paid a, a dear price to walk this path who have been, become foster parents, many in our church who have adopted at great cost to themselves and their own comfortable home, home life. Now, am I trying to just embroil our church in controversy this morning? No, I just happen to be fond of modern illustrations when they just pop up before my very eyes that week. Um, this is just one of many possible issues we could have kind of unpacked a little bit to, to see this basic principle of there's a spirit in the, in the world that is very much against The church, the spirit of God, and it doesn't have to be that issue. It could be any number of issues. And let's certainly not deceive ourselves into thinking the church doesn't have issues at times. And you can see the church fracture and eventually die when it loses its way. And it begins to put all its eggs in one particular basket of one particular cultural issue and just harps on that soapbox week in and week out and becomes a place of condemnation and judgmentalism and self-righteousness. That church will wither and die on the vine. But why I'm bringing this issue up today is is this. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 1.17. Live out your time here as foreigners in reverent fear. The word he used for foreigner is the same as stranger, exile, alien. What does that mean? It means you will not be at home in this world ever in the prevailing culture. You won't be. It's not your home. You won't blend in. You'll stick out. That's what it's like to be a true member of the body of Christ in the world. And Jesus spoke to this more powerfully than anyone. He said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And so, two concluding points today in regard to our identity as the church being out in the world. Here's the first. As long as they are on earth, members of the true church will always find themselves at war, meaning spiritual war, with the enemy of the spirit of the world, the enemy who is the spirit of the world. As long as they're on earth, this will define the true church. And we pull that from Ephesians 2.2, John 15.18, which we just read a couple other verses now, if we were just to stop there, uh, we would be remiss because it kind of creates this picture like, oh, it's just the devil that made me do it. It's just the spiritual evil of the world and, and the church just needs to hunker down in itself because we're the holy ones, we're, we're spiritual, we're good, we don't do any of that horrible stuff out in the world and it's, it's the enemy trying to get in and corrupt us and well, we would be very guilty if we, if we stopped there. Here's the second main point then. It's very similar to the first. As long as they are on earth, members of the true church will always find themselves at war with the enemy of their own flesh, which identifies with the spirit of the world. But for the grace of God, there's only condemnation. There's only judgment. There's only separation. We have to to own up to this truth that there's a problem with the world, and the problem is my sin nature, my flesh, each and every one of us. Again, Paul made this so clear, to me in that passage in Ephesians? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the flesh. Paul elaborates in Romans five, or excuse me, 8, 5 through 11, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. It's what you think about. It's your, it's your value system. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. Do you see the inherent spiritual conflict, the war? And it's with our own flesh. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Boy, there's not a lot of room there for the whole, I'm inherently good and the devil made me do it argument, is there? I mean, this was a heresy that plagued the church hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago in the early centuries, the early church father days, where Pelagius taught basically that man is inherently good or at the very least he's morally neutral and it's just these outside evil forces that come in and corrupt and pollute and no, the gospel is very clear. It's, it's natural within my own heart is where the war is and the enemy is. It's the enemy within. Yes, there is an enemy in the world as well, a spiritual evil that seeks to destroy and corrupt everything good, but it also lives in me. And therefore we arrive to this Hope for the church, the body. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ then, put to death. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I don't live it by the flesh, Paul says. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 6.5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And Romans 6.12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. I hope as we continue through this series, you gain a clearer picture each week of who we truly are as the church, what our place is together, what our place is in the world, what the nature of our relationship is with the powers that be And we'll continue there next time. Father, thank you again for all that you've revealed. These truths are very difficult because they confront us at the deepest level. Lord, it's so easy to look around at what we call the the evil of the world, to watch the news, to to be online, to be on social media, to scroll and scroll and scroll, and we can quickly find ourselves on this moral high ground. But Father, help us to see that this is a two-way street. This is a a two-part war, spiritual war. It's, it's not just with the spirit of the world, which certainly there is that spiritual war, but it's also a spiritual war with the enemy within our own hearts and flesh that has to slowly, steadily, faithfully be put to death with you on the cross that we might come to life and be conformed to your image. You've already declared us holy if our faith is in you, but Lord, you're calling us in the time we have on this earth to grow into that holiness, to become what you've said we already are the ones called out, the ones headed to a country not their own, eternal life with you. Lord, make your bride ready. Purify our hearts. Give us compassion and love for those who are trying to reach with the gospel. And help us not to be hateful, not to have animosity, not to pollute the gospel with our behavior and our words and our tone, but, Lord, to overcome evil with good. Help us in this way, we ask in your name. Amen.